Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 165 with Macienda founder Jorge Gaviria. I then worked at Blue Hill at Stone Barns in Blue Hill, New York. And uh, it was when I was at Blue Hill that I started to think about kind of, you know, just the relationship I had with food, my values as a consumer, you know, had evolved a lot since I was a kid. And the foods that I grew up eating, you know, in a Latin household, um, to me, hadn't really like reflected those changes that I was seeing in real time at these farm to table restaurants. And I just thought that the sourcing could be more thoughtful in the story and approach. And I just wanted to see those foods I grew up eating more thoughtfully represented in, you know, in the grocery store and, you know, in supply chains. So I kind of set out to, to build that platform and I started with Masa. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Tortillas, sopes. Tamales, pupusas. None of these would be possible without one thing corn, but more specifically, masa. I'm Chris Spear, and this is Chefs Without Restaurants, the show where I speak with culinary entrepreneurs and people working in the food and beverage industry outside of a traditional restaurant setting. Today's guest is Jorge Gaviria, founder of Masienda and author of the new book, Masa. If you've ever seen any of my blog posts or cooking videos, or maybe you've hired me to cook for you, You know how much I love tortillas, tacos, and all things masa. That's why I was so excited to have Jorge on the podcast this week. I've been buying masa harina from Macienda for a few years now, but Jorge didn't start there. In the beginning, it was just corn. He went to Mexico to find the best corn and wanted to be able to ship it to restaurants who would then be making their own masa in-house. Actually, he really thought he was going to open up a tortilleria, but found out that was going to be a much more challenging endeavor. So on the show, you're going to get the origin story of Macienda. And I made sure that Jorge gave a little overview about nixtamalization, which is the process of turning corn into masa. We're only going to touch on that, but if you'd really like to get an in-depth look, about the first hundred or so pages of his book really dig into everything from corn anatomy to comals, a masa timeline, and even how to nixtamalize and grind your own corn at home. And for those who just want to buy the masa harina, I asked them about things like water temperature, hydration, and the differences between the corn types. I also wanted to talk to him about brand partnerships, because Masienda has teamed up with a lot of companies like Jacobs and Salt Co., Maiden, and Hayden Flour Mills. So I want to see how those relationships came about. But if there's anything I'd like you to get out of this episode, it's that making tortillas at home is so easy, and I think if you love tacos, you should definitely be doing this. I've found that this is one of the best things you can do with kids. I mean, unless they don't like tacos, right? But this is one of those things that my kids really get excited about. You know, I'll make the dough and then my son will roll the balls. My daughter will press them on the press and then I'll put them on the griddle. So if you're someone who likes Mexican food and anything that's made with masa, just go on the Masienda website and order some masa harina. I think you're really going to be pleased and kind of surprised at how easy this is if you've never done it before. I have never nixtamalized my own corn, and Jorge has me thinking that maybe that's something I should try. I'll let you know how that goes. And of course, I love connecting with people in my community and audience, so find me on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants, 
and go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to get more information on how our organization is helping food entrepreneurs build and grow their businesses. You can get links to the private Facebook group, sign up for our newsletter, and get in our database so I can help personal chefs, caterers, and food truck operators get more leads. And of course, the show would not be made possible without the help from our sponsors. So this week's show is brought to you by the United States Personal Chef Association. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email her at A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com for membership and partner info. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I've been trying to get you on the show for actually a couple of years now. You might not have even known, but well before you even had a book out. So I'm actually kind of glad that it didn't work out earlier on because now we can talk about this book you have. So you're just coming off of a book tour. I was uh, lucky enough to see you in DC. So thanks for coming through and, and talking to us. Of course. Yeah, it was great to see you and finally put a face to the name. So for all of our listeners, this is going to be all about masa, uh, tortillas, and the like today. So I want to kind of start with your background, like food. Are you someone who always grew up loving food? I mean, some people love food, some don't. Some are, you know, I was a little fat kid in the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> and, did you, and did you end up working in restaurants? Like what's kind of your background and relationship with food? Yeah, I grew up definitely loving food, um, had a strong passion for it, uh, early inclination to just like think about it all the time. And then, um, I mean, I just growing up in Miami, my dad is an attorney or was an attorney. Um, and I kind of just planned on going down the same path and everything was sort of like, seemed like all the, all the, the stars were aligned to go, you know, down the same route. And then I decided like sometime after graduating from college and I taught for two years in, uh, in Brooklyn, I was like, you know, I was ready to go to law school and um, I actually like wasn't that ready. Like there was just something kind of blocking me. And I read a book um, by Danny Meyer, um, who was sort of a, an early hero of mine. And, you know, he talked about not going to law school and instead going to, you know, live in Italy and <clears throat> kind of work, you know, work around uh, Italy for, for a year before getting into the restaurant business. And I was like, this is my reason. This is my excuse to do exactly the same thing. And so showed my dad the book. I was like, this is, this is my plan. I, it's a plan without a plan. I'm just going to go to Italy and I'm going to farm for a year and then figure out what happens. And he's like, well, you know, it's so funny. Your, your grandfather, my dad, um, was in the restaurant business. And I was like, I thought he was an attorney. And he's like, he was an attorney, but he actually was more passionate about food and ended up doing food for his <laughs> majority of his life, which I had no idea. Um, we were not that close. So it was interesting to hear that it was sort of like already in my DNA, you know, and, um, you know, I had sort of the family blessing. So 
I worked um, in Italy for a year. I did a farming and butchering apprenticeship out there and then came back. I worked for Danny Meyer um, as a cook at one of his restaurants in Manhattan called Maialino. I then worked at Blue Hill at Stone Barns in Blue Hill, New York. And uh, it was when I was at Blue Hill that I started to think about kind of, you know, just the relationship I had with food, my values as a consumer, you know, had evolved a lot since I was a kid. And the foods that I grew up eating, you know, in a Latin household, um, to me, hadn't really like reflected those changes that I was seeing in real time at these farm to table restaurants. And I just thought that the sourcing could be more thoughtful in the story and approach. And I just wanted to see those foods I grew up eating more thoughtfully represented in, you know, in the grocery store and, you know, in supply chains. So I kind of set out to, to build that platform and I started with Masa. Was there a template for you to follow at the time? Was anyone doing any really good high quality masa out there? No one was doing really good high quality masa, which I thought was interesting. I was, you know, just kind of blown away by this thing. You know, like I, I could have a tortilla, I could have tortilla chips, tamales. I actually don't like tamales as much. Uh, it's like one secret about me. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, all of these foods that I love, I was just kind of blown away by the fact that none of them... You know, very few folks could tell me how, kind of the story and the process that went into making them. And I was just kind of curious about that relationship. Um, the more I kind of understood it, the more I was like, my goodness, like this is such a rich, you know, staple in so many ways. Um, if only people knew more about it. Um, I think, you know, Rancho Gordo had been doing this for beans for a while. I thought that was really compelling. Anson Mills was doing it for kind of Southern... I forget what he calls them, like antebellum, you know, grains. Yeah, I think that's the word he uses, yeah. Um, yeah it's very specific. And then uh, for me, I was like, I think this needs to be done for masa. And the idea was actually to start a, a tortilleria, like a tortilla factory, kind of like a tartine bakery uh, was my idea. And I was like, this is going to be you know, have the theater and it's going to sort of really show people how much work and love goes into making tortillas and masa. Um, but I just, I couldn't, the one piece that was missing for me, um, it's not like I had a lease or anything like that, but the one other piece that was missing for me was that I couldn't, I couldn't quite land on like what was the right supply chain, what was the right raw ingredient to start with. Um, there's plenty of corn in the U.S., but none of it was really kind of doing justice to this staple of masa like I felt like it needed to be. And that's when I started looking in Mexico uh, for solutions and, and supply chain answers to that, that problem. When was this? That was 2013 uh, when I started doing research, and then 2014 is when I started to actually work in Mexico to to find solutions on the ground. And um, it turns out that folks have been doing a lot of this sort of supply chain preservation uh, that comes with heirloom corn. Um, you know, there's about three million smallholder farmers in Mexico that do this. You know, just they they preserve the world's genetic supply of corn. Um, it's basically like an open seed bank, you know, in the, in the fields and, you know, the various regions of Mexico. Um, it's like a living, breathing seed bank. And uh, these are traditionally, they're a little older farmers. Um, they are folks who are certainly needing, uh, needing some support um, and kind of some additional resources for, you know, offloading any surplus materials they have, which became very hard to compete with commodity corn, you know, especially after NAFTA. So there was like a real impact opportunity there. And uh, there had been folks who had been do, you know, doing the work of documenting these land race heirloom corn varieties and, you know, uh, working with farmer populations to improve them and through natural sort of like, you know, breeding practices. 
And, um, you know, what they just needed was a market for it. And so I just, a light bulb went off. I was like, this is it. This is the way to, to kind of explore, um, building a supply chain and, you know, the, the rest, uh, the rest is kind of history. How was the reception when you went down there? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people who come from the U S you know, businesses go down there, kind of exploit these people. Were they kind of wary or were they welcoming when you came down and started to kind of explore this process? It's interesting. I think there were definitely some communities that had been burned, not even by foreigners, but by folks within their community who said that they would take the corn on consignment. You know, it's a lot of work. Corn is very cumbersome. You know, like a a 50 pound bag of corn takes up a good amount of space. And, um, you know, if you've got several bags of this and you want to go take it to a market and um, you're going to have to figure out transportation for that. You're going to have to figure out like a market stall. It's quite costly to to, to bring to market for for these subsistence based growers. And um, a lot had been burned in that process where they would say, you know, a neighbor would be like, "Oh, let me go take this on consignment for you," and then they'd never come back with money, or uh, you know, they'd they'd short them on the payment. And so I think that was actually mostly the kind of the, the thought process that happened for some, not all of them. Um, it wasn't actually about being a foreigner. I think they were just sort of more entertained than anything about the fact that a foreigner would want corn to export to the U.S., which is the largest producing corn you know, country in the world by a long, by a very long shot. So, yeah, I think there was sort of just a curiosity a little bit of skepticism about just a model, like, uh, you know, an equitable model in general. But very soon after starting, you know, I think word got out that this was an option and the price was right and people were getting paid immediately. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of one thing led to another and it built a lot of trust in the communities that we started in and then that we grew into. When you started this, were you talking to chefs and people like, was there an interest? Did you know that there was going to be a market for this or was it a hunch and just like a, something you hoped would happen? I honestly was really fully invested in this idea of opening my own tortilleria. So it wasn't actually until I got to Mexico and I, and I realized just like how much work it was going to take to build the supply chain alone that I was, I kind of took a step back from the tortilleria idea and was, you know, like, all right, how do we build the supply chain with a ready to go market? Um, and it was really naive. I mean, honestly, I got lucky. I, I worked in the restaurant industry and was still had my, you know, one foot in it at that time um, from a restaurant. Like I was actually working in Blue Hill still. And so I reached out to a couple of folks who had a relationship with Mexican food. And, you know, it just so happened that Enrique Olvera, who had, I, I literally checked his coat at Blue Hill. It was such a it was such a random connection, but I reached out to him and, and said, Hey, I think it sounds like you're opening up a restaurant in a couple of months. Um, I'm actually going to be sourcing this corn for a tortilleria I'm starting, but was wondering if you wanted to, you know, buy any corn and you can, you know, do this whole process, um, you know, build a masa program in your, in your restaurant. He was like, you know, it's actually amazing timing. That's a, uh, that's my plan. Um, I just need really, you know, I need great corn for that. And, we haven't really figured that out. And I was like, oh man, this is amazing. Um, this is too good to be true. And like, you know, just so happened, like he, Sean Brock, you know, had been going through the same process. He was opening up Monero at the time when he was still with the neighborhood, uh, is that neighborhood group? Neighborhood dining Yeah, group? that sounds right down in Charleston. 
Yeah. Um, you know, Taco Maria was opening up, wanted to do the same thing. Carlos Salgado was interested. You had Rosio Sanchez, who was leaving Noma to go open up her own place. Like, it was kind of this perfect storm of high profile chefs wanting to open up their own concepts around masa and um, kind of like uncharted territory, at least in the US. Like, nobody in, you know, this kind of fine dining, really, like, no restaurants had. Had, had very few had, had really publicly ever kind of like gone out of their way to, to to source and produce masa from scratch. And so there was just kind of like a moment that we were all sort of waiting to see like how it would be received if there was a real translation kind of from from kind of that farm to table experience for masa. And sure enough, like critics took note, guests took note and the more kind of notoriety and celebration that these restaurants got, the more there was an interest in trying to replicate what they did to make such excellent masa. And we didn't have, I mean, I don't know, at the time there weren't that many high-end, finer dining, like Mexican restaurants in the U.S. Not that I can really think of. Before this sort of like, quote unquote, modern Mexican movement got started around, honestly, 2014 with Cosme and Empeon and you know, Taco Maria and many others, um, you know, it was sort of the authentic Mexican movement. And what's interesting about that movement, and this was sort of really punctuated by like, you know, certainly Rick Bayless, um, probably the poster child of that movement and did so much to educate consumers on, you know, just what real Mexican food should be or looks like, uh, tastes like. And, um, you know, I think that there was, you know, Rosa Mexicano, Roberto Santibanez, like there were... There were examples of this, but nobody was making masa in-house. Um, it was just, it was sort of considered a daunting process, really kind of like highly technical, difficult, you know, from an, from an access standpoint, like where do you get the corn? And, you know, again, cor- corn is sort of cumbersome. It's a bit dense. It's like, where do you store the corn in a small New York City restaurant? Um, so like, you know, how do you mill it? Like these were all questions that had no one had ever really needed to figure out because there was no, there was no... I think like marketplace to, to create a solution for it. And also it was just sort of where we were in the evolution of, you know, our, our kind of active consumption, you know, it was like a, it was a big enough step to do a mole from scratch, you know, versus getting a paste or, um, you know, buying masa from a local tortilleria. That was enough, you know, that was sort of just where the starting point was. And it just, the, the conversation just kept evolving. I'm fortunate enough to say that I was, actually literally the first table sat at Cosme on opening night. I, I It was so cool and so weird. I was like the first one. So at, at one point I was like sitting in literally like an empty dining room. Um, no way. Then, yeah. It, I was in town for the Star Chefs conference, oh, uh, which wow. is in October. And I just remember uh, seeing like, you know, something popped up that like reservations are now open. I was like, oh, wow, I'll be in New York because I don't live in New York. And I made a reservation. I ha- got like the 530 reservation. It's funny because Enrique did like a main stage demo that night. And I saw him like two hours before. And I was, I was like, there for that. Were you? Uh, so I was like, chef, um, like I'm eating in your restaurant in two hours. Like, are you <laughs> are you going to be there tonight? Um, but yeah, I managed to stay for his uh, talk and then hightail it across town and sat down. So I also joke that I think I was the first person to probably Instagram that corn husk meringue that became like the viral dish for that year. Yeah. That's so funny, man. That's wild. What a time. That was, uh, (laughs) it was a moment, but it wasn't until Pete Wells wrote his review that I think like, 
I think there was some skepticism, you know, like it was a, it was an outsider, you know, it wasn't a local New York chef. Um, we'd seen a lot of folks fail, you know, like there was some high profile chefs who came into New York from out of town and, and just couldn't, it didn't land, but yeah, Cosme just, it crushed it and it just set up a, a real kind of opportunity for others to, to jump in and it made Masa look really good. And I'd also say, you know, like Alex Dupac's book, Tacos, that that was kind of when I really got interested in making tortillas at home. I mean, I'm not nixtamalizing my own corn, but just like using good masa. And that's kind of what led me to you was, OK, I'm going to make these tacos. Sure, I can go buy, you know, Maseka in the grocery store, but what's out there? And that's, I think, how I found you. You know, you were kind of still new at the time. I don't, I don't remember when that book came out. And that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of like, really awesome masa. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 2015, I think is when that came out. And, um, yeah, I mean, Alex, Alex was like, I mean, honestly, I think he really created a space in New York for even just the conversation of modern Mexican food, which, you know, for, he's, he's, he's self, uh, self deprecating about it. You know, I'm just like a white guy from, from, from Massachusetts, but he really like, I mean, he invited Enrique to one of his first push projects, you know, which was sort of these guest chef appearances that you would do and really think outside the box about Mexican cuisine. And, you know, he, a lot of credit goes to him for just tinkering and creating a space for, for, uh, kind of the evolution of Mexican food is certainly in New York, but obviously as a, as a canvas for the, the country. What was your product line when you started? Were you just selling corn and all the stuff to have people make their own masa? Or did you start with like masa harina as well? What was that time frame like? Literally just selling. Well, at that time, it was uh, 170, 155 pound bags of corn because I thought it was cheaper. Um, to It was cheaper. I was like, oh, I'll just double the amount in one bag and just spend basically money on one bag. Except I didn't realize like, you know, you had to lift that and I was the one who was making deliveries in those early days. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit tough, but, uh, it was just corn. Um, and, uh, you know, finally figured out that 55 pounds was a more appropriate bag size. Um, and then it really kind of just was a slow evolution. I mean, there were, there were places you could buy Cal. Uh, I recommended those places to folks and just really focused on the corn, um, and then over time, you know, as the kind of the team expanded and my bandwidth expanded, we started to kind of take on other supply chains and other kind of opportunities between, you know, the cow to Masarina, just finding the right place to do that to, you know, all of the range of things we do today. Milling equipment, like that was a really big one. At the time, it was just so expensive for these restaurants to get started you know, making masa in house, like you had to wait six to nine months to get a mill from like one of like three places in the United States that would make it just like a really outdated system for buying the machinery. And, uh, we ended up creating a solution for that, like a tabletop mill solution that uses basalt stones, just basically shrunken down, um, which has just been completely amplified the conversation. And, you know, there's now thousands of home cooks around the world that do this with equipment that just wasn't available at that time when I started. Well, I want to circle back to that because that is something I want to talk about. Can we go back to a little bit? You wrote the book literally called Masa, and there's yeah. so much info, so much great reading. But for our listeners who maybe don't have as much of a background on this, can you give us like a Cliff Notes version on what Masa is and and kind of like the nixtamalization process, like for people who don't understand what you're doing to the corn to get it to that point where it's Masa or Masa Arena. 
Yeah. So masa is the Spanish word for dough. Um, in this context, you know, certainly in Mexico and other parts of, of modern day Mesoamerica, even parts of South America, masa more specifically refers to a corn dough. And that corn is special because it's gone through an alkaline treatment, which is sounds like more intimidating than it actually is. It just means that it's been cooked in some water with a little dash of like alkaline, you know, powder. In this case, calcium hydroxide is what's most commonly used. And that just basically means it helps break down the corn and it makes it nutritious. So you don't need to worry too much about what happens unless you are curious and you can read the book. But, uh, you know, the, the main gist of it is that it's really special. It's kind of this, it's really alchemy what happens to corn when it, when it is treated in this alkaline solution. Um, and that, that process is called nixtamalization. So yeah, masa is the result of that. You take the corn that's been uh, cooked in, in that alkaline water. It's soaked in that alkaline water. The science and kind of miracle of nixtamalization has happened to it. And then you rinse it off uh, and you grind it in some way or another. So um, if you're working at home, you can use a, you know, Cuisinart food processor. You can use a hand mill, uh, which is what I would recommend if you didn't want to make that kind of that big leap investment into a molinito. You can use a basalt molino like the molinito. Um, basically, you're just going to kind of get that down into a dough. And at that point, it's called masa. So do you think that's realistic for someone who's maybe an amateur cook at home, like they don't have plans to do this as a business, just a recreational thing? I mean, I think people have gotten used to doing more intricate things at home. People are doing fermentation at home. They're messing with koji. They're doing sourdough. How realistically easy would this be? Like, I've never done it. Is this something I should jump in and try? Totally. I mean, even if just wants to kind of relate to how magical of a process it is. Like, I actually think it's way more straightforward than fermentation or, uh, you know, bread making. Like I find those far more intimidating, just, you know, gases and like explosions and, you know, I don't know, just like, it seems it's literally more volatile to me, but, uh, yeah, I think it's really fun. That's how I started. Honestly, it was just sort of understanding kind of what that process looked like. And, uh, when I got to know it, I just had like a deeper reverence for, for it. You know, it doesn't mean that I do it all the time. In fact, like, you know, I, I use masadina most of the time now um, because it's, yeah, there's a solution for it. It's a, and it doesn't skimp on the quality. Um, you know, I, it, it will certainly, like I said, deepen the connection and respect you have for it and the cultures behind it. And I think that that's as good a reason as any to, to give it a shot, even if you don't do it forever. And I don't think people necessarily realize how easy it is to make tortillas or masa-based products, especially if you're using the masa harina. Like, it's literally two ingredients, usually, right? Like that and water. And I tell people all the time, like, you love tacos? Why aren't you making them? Like, buy a bag of this stuff, add water, and there you go, right? Like, you don't even have to have a tortilla press. You can roll it out. You can do all kinds of things. It's just a two ingredient, and one of them is water that you already have. But I think people are still so intimidated just to even make tortillas at home. And I don't know why. So it's something I've been preaching for a couple of years and I'm always providing them resources. Um, quite often, many of yours to get them started <laughs> on the tortilla making um, mode. Thank you. Yeah. I think that if there's any place to start, that's it. You know, like it's, it's shockingly easy. There is like zero science. You don't, you need to worry about it. You literally add water, you form a dough into whatever shape you want. And like it's magical. It's, it is such a different experience. The payoff is so big. 
the work is so little and it's it's a uh, it changes your relationship with the food for sure and i'm always trying to eke out the best results so i have a couple technical questions and and maybe they're you know it doesn't matter, but water temperature. Is there a specific water temperature for when you're mixing? And then two, should you be resting your dough? Do you have opinions on these questions? I think that warm water is really nice um, just because it, you know, it just sort of like activates the the masa. It starts to smell really good. It kind of just blooms the flavor a little bit. Just like tap warm water, you know, like nothing crazy. Um, and it kind of just mimics what it feels like when it's coming off the stones, you know, it's, it's like quite warm because of the friction that stones create once they're being kind of, they're grinding against one another. It's just nice. It kind of recreates that experience, um, of, of fresh, fresh masa. So, uh, resting time, you know, I was just talking to Rick Bayless about this. We did a little video together. He likes to rest it. Um, I don't, I don't. It's interesting to think about. I had never really thought about it that much from a resting perspective. I just want to make sure that the the masa is wet to touch, but like not sticky. Um, and honestly, I think that after resting it, I end up needing to add a little more water to it because masa dries out so fast that, uh, you know, I it's kind of six one by half a dozen the other to me. I've even seen people like vacuum seal it like they do pasta doughs to like speed up hydration. And I didn't know if hydration was an issue, if this is just like overcomplicating things. Yeah, it's definitely overcomplicating it. I think if you take like a baker's approach to masa, you could you could give yourself a headache. <laughs> now, can your masa harina be used interchangeably with any recipe you find out there? You know, there's a recipe for tamales and it's using maseka, assuming you, you know, don't have your product is it like a one for one switch yeah yeah exactly i mean for tamales specifically there's like quite a few camps on how folks you know approach it there's some you know some really like kind of like a grittier coarser masa for tamales i i don't i, I think i mentioned earlier i don't really love tamales it's not my favorite way to enjoy masa um it's kind of just the texture for me but uh but yeah Certainly every recipe that I wrote in the book, you know, between the traditional recipe shapes, you know, masa shapes that you find throughout Latin America to the modern masa recipes, you can use, you can use masa harina for all of that. It's all interchangeable. And in fact, it's really cool to kind of, with a new appreciation, go back to some of these classic Mexican cookbooks and, and just, uh, you know, approach it with either homemade masa or masa harina of a higher quality than what's recommended in those, because I think most were like, oh yeah, just use Maseca. But there were so few options when a lot of these books were written. Yeah. I have a friend who makes pupusas. She actually used to have a pupusa food truck and she taught me and my family how to make them, but she was using Maseca and I didn't know, like she gave me a recipe and of course, actually she's not using a recipe, right? She's doing it by touch, but I'm not at that point. So I started looking at recipes online and was just wondering, ah, could I take this, you know, Masiendo product I have and just swap it in? And I hadn't tried that yet. So knowing that we're totally ready to make pupusas with it at home because it's become one of my family's favorite things to eat. No, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And the, the book is great. I made sopes for the first time uh, last week. I don't know why I've never done it before. Just hadn't gotten around to it, but uh, decided to take a crack at that and they came out pretty good. Right? Like, so easy, so satisfying. I think, like, I just rediscovered my love for sopes 
um, in the last couple of weeks even, which is so fun about just all the shapes in general. There really is like a different shape and texture and kind of flavor for every, every occasion. And I made the masa cookies, which were great, even though I freestyled it a little bit. Um, I probably need to go back. I usually, when I try a recipe for the first, for the first time, usually make it by the book, but this one, I just had different ingredients on hand and didn't want to go to the store. So I kind of winged it, but I was really happy with how they came out and I'll probably go back and make it like, um, by the book next time. But, uh, (laughs) I was really happy to see that in there. I'm, I'm nervous to deviate, especially on pastry related, you know, foods and like a, like a cookie, but yeah, Jess Stevens, the chef who put that one together is just like so, so talented. And it, it, uh, I'm not even a fan of, of sweets, honestly. And that one, that one definitely converted me. So we've touched on a little bit. You've got a book. I'd love to hear about the book. How did the book come about? Was it just time to write the definitive book on masa? That's it. Yeah, in a nutshell. I mean, you know, it's, I think it it was a natural evolution of just what I was doing day to day. And, and, uh, yeah, I think the funny thing is that when I started Masienda in 2014, I, I was just looking to some of my heroes, you know, in, in the culinary universe and just the fact that this food would really humble them and, uh, they didn't have answers, you know, and, and they were just, it wasn't like they could read some book on it and go to work. Like, it was a lot of trial and error. And of course, like, you know, being a purveyor of kind of the raw ingredients, it was up to me to kind of, to really help guide that experience. So I had to learn and guide at the same time. And it just kind of got to a point where, you know, I was just thinking to myself, it's crazy. Like we're sharing so many notes and there's so much kind of knowledge we're accumulating here. You know, this is a largely oral tradition. Um, How much more would folks dive into this if there was something actually really, you know, written on the subject, you know, more than like a blog post on the internet or, you know, a YouTube video. And um, yeah, I think it was just sort of one step led to another. We did a small little like primer booklet, you know, short stack kind of thing. I have um, that, yeah. the, the next them all book. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. You were like way early on all the stuff. You're, you're ahead of the game. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we did that and that was, the demand was crazy. I mean, more folks just kept ordering it. We kind of, we, we did several printings of it. And then at some point I was just like, all right, I think the questions aren't being answered anymore. You know, people are asking for more and, um, there was just so much more to say. So, you know, timing wise, I think that the market had kind of evolved to make a book like Masa possible. Um, I knew that there was a real movement behind it and, you know, what was really missing was a text to kind of bring it all together. So that was, uh, that was it. I, I got the, uh, the book green lit, honestly, like in March, 2020, just before the pandemic got started. And it was a great thing to do during the pandemic, just sit down and write. I guess that gives you a lot of time to work on. We all had time that we weren't expecting to have. So I guess kind of a blessing in some ways, at least, uh, I'm sure you had a lot less going on than normal. It was, you know, in some ways it was the craziest time because we were trying to pivot the business to be more friendly to kind of the home cook and home consumer. Um, but in other ways, it was just, it was great, you know, like to get, you know, the, the, I think the experience rounded out for a home cook, like a cookbook is, is just speaks that language, you know, from start to finish. So it was, uh, it was very complimentary of, of kind of the direction the business was headed and also just kind of very cathartic to look back and put all these words and thoughts and and kind of data points together in an organized way that people could follow. Did you see an uptick uh, from the home consumer during COVID? You know, we talk a lot about 
everyone was baking bread. But did you see also that people were really interested in making tortillas while they were home? Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny just doing this book tour over the last couple of weeks, the amount of folks who came in and said, man, I started working with your product during the pandemic, you know, and that's when we launched our Masarina. That's when we launched our tortilla press. Like we really, you know, it was just a perfect moment of, of user adoption. And, uh, for sure. I mean, at that time, restaurants weren't open for, for a while and we are actually, we thought we were going to go out of business, but it's crazy. I mean, the, the pandemic panic purchasing was a real thing, but um, what's crazy is that it stuck. You know, people really loved that experience. They really connected more deeply with that, with that staple that they probably took for granted before. And, you know, like me, once you, once you taste it, there's really no going back. Like, Everything else sucks in comparison. That is true for sure. Yeah. What are the differences in the four that you sell? Like, how do you know what to use? Or is it just playing around? Like, if you want to make a sope, you know, do you reach for the blue, the white, the yellow, the red? Do you have any guidance on that when selecting what um, masa harina to use? I wish I could really give you a more like thought. I mean, there's... I, would, I don't want to complicate it. I think like at the end of the day, it's sort of whatever, whatever your, your taste and preferences at that moment, like color is definitely the, the kind of we eat with our eyes. So whatever is looking most appetizing to you, go for it. You know, there's also a whole world out there of people mixing colors together and kind of making a tie dye effect or, you know, like these really beautiful patterns. So I think like it doesn't matter. Um, you can make a really delicious sope or tortilla from any of these things, tamales from any of these things. Um, there are like slight flavor sort of variations, but like at the end of the day, they all taste like excellent masa, you know? So it's just sort of like basic tasting notes. It's not as drastic as like, you know, uh, let's say different kinds of breads, maybe like a rye bread from a sourdough or something like that. Or, or even grapes. Or, I mean, like we use that analogy a lot where it's like, oh, you know, this is sort of these corn has terroir just like wine and it does, but it's not as like, it's not as, I don't know, um, off the charts, you know, different, like different gamay grapes grown across the world are going to taste pretty wildly different from each other. Um, you know, compared to corn, there are definitely variations, but like when we're talking about Mexico, we're already kind of refining that, like that sourcing location already to a pretty specific part of the world, you know, then even further than that, we're getting kind of corns that are specifically suitable for masa. So they're all very complementary, and you can't go wrong. Um, but yeah, some slight, some slight flavor variations, like the yellow, for example, has like to me, um, some, some, I mean, it has shares beta carotene, right? So it's, uh, that's what kind of gives it that yellowy, uh, pigmentation to it. And that's something that's commonly found in carrots and butternut squash. And so I, I find that there's some kind of notes of that there, but still absolutely tastes like masa, you know, and corn. Um, same thing with the white, you know, the white comes from a white olotillo. It has that kind of like movie theater buttered popcorn flavor to it. It's just like very richly corny in the right ways with like a nice sort of like mouthfeel fat to it that to me like just means the the flavor lingers a little bit longer on your palate. Um, and then the red and the blue, for me, the flavor is excellent. There's sort of a nuttiness to it, um, even like a light sweetness to it. But, you know, 
at the end of the day, the texture is just like impossibly soft of those, those, uh, the moss that comes off of it. So, you know, I think you won't go wrong. Um, try them all. And I've mixed them based on, you know, I've got like a quarter cup of blue in the bag and then I have a new bag of white and it's just like mix them together. Totally. You can totally do that. And it, it'll still yield the same. It's not like you're mixing like double zero flour. It's not it's not a, a question of the thickness, you know, or the grind. It's it's truly just at that point flavor. And I think collaborations are great. And you've worked with some really great companies like Jacobson Salt, Maiden, uh, Hayden Flower. How do you go about selecting the businesses that you want to work with? Because, you know, that represents you as much as um, anything you do, I think. So how did you choose those brands that you wanted to collab with? I mean, I think they're they're all uh, brands that we respect as doing similar things for their respective um, you know, staples. So Jacobson, big fan of the quality of salts that they make and just as a consumer really enjoy them. So it's just fun to kind of bring my own personal, like, <laughs> I don't know, like preferences to, to light in, in this way through. Like, like you prefer to put worms in their salt. Like yeah. I was like, man, I just like, who does great salt? You know, like when you, when you, uh, when you think about like, you know, what are the options out there? Jacobson is like the one that comes to mind. It's the, the best. So it's like, let's try this with some, some, you know, like bringing a delicacy in Mexico to life using one of my favorite salts there is. And, uh, you know, that was just, it's still one of my favorite collaborations we've done. Um, you know, made in does such a great job. They're really kind of at that intersection of craftsmanship and kind of culinary experience and, you know, blue carbon steel, like they just have such a great supply chain for that great production partners. And, um, it just said something new about the product that we knew and cared about as a Kamal. So, you know, it's just, they're, they're, they're logical in a lot of ways. Like they're just, again, like, brands that I love and, you know, kind of dream about working with one day and then it comes to life. And how important is it to have a Komal versus, you know, a cast iron pan? I actually use a baking steel on my stove as like a big flat top for that. So what are your thoughts on cooking just like a basic tortilla? Yeah, you know, I think that you can use whatever you got. Um, you want to make sure it's like as close to a nonstick surface as possible so that you don't get a lot of kind of bits of masa sticking to it. Um, you know, honestly, a high enough temperature will ensure that pretty much anything doesn't stick, but masa can be, you know, you got to be careful. You don't, you don't overdo it. So, um, I recommend we have a Komal that is, is fantastic. It's made of blue carbon steel, which you can really regulate the temperature quickly on. Um, you know, it, it's, it responds quickly to, to, if you were to change the temperature, um, it's not like cast iron where it's just like a lot of retained heat. It's just hard to work with. Um, it's also like a fraction of the weight. So a little shout out plug to the Komal there, um, which basically is just a griddle, you know, it's a circular griddle, but I, uh, if I don't have that, if I'm like at my in-laws house, you know, and they haven't seasoned their Komal that I left them, you know, and taking as good care of it as I would, uh, you know, we can use like a, a nonstick panel work just fine as well. You know, I don't do the straight on the burner technique as much. I just, it gets a little messy and it's a little too, uh, too aggressive of a heat, but folks do it and love it. So I think where there's a will, there's a way at the end of the day. Yeah, most definitely. I'm gonna have to pick one of those up. Again, like I love using my baking steel. I don't know if you've ever used one of those, but it's also like a 40 pound piece of steel. 
Uh, so, you know, I work as a personal chef and I do tortillas in people's homes a lot. So like carrying this gigantic piece of steel doesn't really work for me. So I do bring the tortilla press and all my gear. So I'm, I'm in the market to get something to, uh, to take my tortilla show on the road, make it a little easier on me. I love that. But I love the press. I think I bought the tortilla press, like first release, like maybe the day, I don't know, you send your emails and I open your emails and I'm always like, huh, I never knew I needed that, but I think I'm going to get one. So I think like the first day that email went, I was like, oh, limited edition tortilla press. Yeah, I'm going to get one of those. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, those are just like, again, you know, we're working with restaurants over the years and they just kept asking us to bring this one particular tortilla press back from Mexico that was just hard to find in the US, like impossible to find and even hard to find in Mexico. And we just kept doing it and doing it. And we're like, you know, this really is great. Like, let's just make this a little bit more widely accessible. So I'm glad you enjoy it. It's 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 deceivingly simple and yet like makes such a big difference in bringing a, a tortilla to life. When I tell everyone the most fun thing we do as a family cooking is making tortillas and having like taco night and that tortilla press makes it even easier. Like for my kids, I have 10 year old twins and it's, you know, it's like a nice big surface area there. So we get the three man show, like, you know, my son's rolling them, my daughter's pressing them and then handing them to me and I'm throwing them on the flat top there. Um, So their favorite thing, I tell people, if you want your kids to eat get them engaged in the cooking process. And I can't think of anything more fun, like than just making tortillas at home. Totally. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you just nailed it. I, if you want a hypnotic way to get your kids involved in something, you know, and like just focused on a quote unquote activity, like parents were all looking for activities. There is like no greater activity than masa as far as I'm concerned. So everyone out there, go get your tortilla presses, get some really good uh, masa and just start um, making tortillas at home. That's that's my plug there. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. What he said. So obviously the book still very new, but do you have anything else you're working on right now that's new and exciting? Oh, man. Getting the book out there has been a an amazing lift. Um, so we're still still very much in the early innings of that and trying to just uh, promote it as much as we can and get folks to just share your experience, Chris. I mean, doing something at home, you know, bringing Masa to life at home is such a fun thing to do and so easy. So that's top of mind right now. But um, yeah, next book, already thinking about that, uh, wanting to kind of deepen the kind of the recipe uh, relationship there and just kind of work with more creatives in the space to, to, to bring some cool recipes to life. Lots of, lots of secrets. I can't share too much, but we've got a lot in store in the next couple of months from, uh, from Hacienda's point of view. We're working with more brands locally in Mexico to kind of, to, to celebrate what they do. And um, some folks that I'm really excited about sharing with the world. Uh, we've got, we've got more in store soon. When it becomes public, I will post it out across my channels and make sure everyone knows. Uh, you're so kind. Thank you. Is there anything you want to share before we get out of here today? I mean, we could talk about masa and tortillas forever, but I want to make sure that you've said as much as you can that you want to get out there before we wrap it up today. Just make a tortilla at home. Use masarina, do it once, and tell me it didn't change your life or relationship to the food. That's all. That's, I mean, that's kind of my plug. That's what I say. It's, it's really easy, right? And just go out there and do it. Yeah. Just get your hands dirty. It takes no time. And the payoff is so big. I promise you. Well, 
you sold me. I hope you sold some new people out there. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad we could finally do this. Thanks, Chris. Me too. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.